So let's uh, begin here with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for guarding us and protecting us from the deceptions that can so easily befall us. We ask that you would help us to use the information that we discuss this evening to witness to those around us and, and to lovingly proclaim your truth to those who have fallen prey to this deception of Mormonism. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It gets hot out there in the, in the deserts of Utah, and as the heat waves are rising up in the distance, you can see uh, things that aren't really there, <laughs> things that aren't real. And the, the, uh, Mormon, the teachings of Mormonism are like a mirage. They seem to be real. They seem to have some substance behind them, but things are not really what they seem. This is Sandra Turner. She is the great-great-granddaughter of Brigham Young. She and her husband, Gerald, left the Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they have become very outspoken critics against Mormonism. They, they wrote a book called the, the Changing World of Mormonism, and they have a ministry to proclaim the, the gospel to Mormons, to witness th to them. And this is what Sandra Turner had to say about Mormonism. The Mormon church has a PR department probably better than anybody else. And they are very careful in painting a public image that tries to make Mormonism sound like it's just about the same as evangelical Christianity. But it really isn't. I think it's kind of similar to saying that a cat is a dog. So let's take a look at that at with that Mormon mirage and compare it to the teachings of biblical Christianity. Now, you knew there was going to be an acronym in here somewhere, right? So we're going to look at Moroni, and we're going to look at the organization of the Mormon church, and the revelations of the Mormon church, the Mormon doctrinal deviations from Christian, biblical Christianity, and the oaths and temple rituals that Mormons undergo. And finally, we're going to look at the new and everlasting covenant of plural marriage. Moroni. Who was Moroni? If you go to a Mormon temple high atop the spire, the steeple, you will see not a cross, but an image of the angel Moroni. Moroni was the angel who supposedly got the ball rolling here. But Moroni wasn't always a human being. Maybe you didn't know that. Moroni was at one time a, a, a mortal man. He was the last military commander of the Nephites. And I'll talk more about the Nephites later. According to the Book of Mormon, as a mortal... Moroni served as the last military commander of the Nephite nation. Upon death, he went to paradise and was subsequently resurrected as an angel. In 1823, Moroni visited young Joseph Smith and divulged the location of golden plates inscribed with a record of God's dealings with the ancient inhabitants of the Americas. In what Smith claimed to be reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. So there you see Moroni appearing to Joseph Smith and disclosing to him the location of the golden plates. Oh, by the way, when Moroni was a mortal man, his father was named Mormon. So that's why they're called Mormons, and that's why they refer to the Book of Mormon, because Mormon supposedly wrote on these golden plates. That's where they get the, the word Mormon. Now, this, this is important. Smith also found magical eyeglasses, which he used to translate the cryptic writing in English, creating the Book of Mormon and founding Mormonism. So there's Joseph Smith prayerfully considering the golden plates. Now, these are not the golden plates from which 
Joseph Smith translated, those golden plates were taken back to heaven by Moroni. So this is just a reproduction of what the golden plates might have looked like. The Book of Mormon purports to tell about four people groups that immigrated from the Middle East to the Americas. Now, the first of these were the Jaredites, and they migrated in about 2250 B.C., at the time of the Tower of Babel. And then came the sons of Lehi, that was around 600 B.C., just prior to the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. The sons of Levi eventually became divided into two groups, the Nephites, who were primarily righteous, and the Lamanites, who were primarily wicked. And then there are the Mulekites. Uh, Joseph Smith must, must have had a, a field day inventing these names. The Mulekites came to America in about 586 B.C., the time of, of the fall of Babylon. Now, Mulekite was the only surviving son of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, even though he's not mentioned in the Bible at all, this Mulekite, this Mulek. Uh, he is mentioned in the Book of Mormon, so that's how we know about him. Now, after the resurrection, Jesus Christ visited the Americas, these people, these ancient civilizations in Americas, and he proclaimed the gospel to them. So there you see that. Now, the only one of these four people groups that survived down to modern times were the Lamanites. Now, remember, the Lamanites were primarily wicked. So God punished them for their wickedness by giving them dark skin. So as you can see, there's a little bit of uh, racism going on in the, in the writings of Joseph Smith. The, the Lamanites are the ancestors of the modern American Indians. That's, that's where the American Indians came from, from the Lamanites. So where is the evidence? What evidence is there that the American Indians are descended from Israelites? And what evidence is there that these ancient civilizations existed in the Americas? Well, let's look briefly at the anthropological evidence, DNA versus the Book of Mormon. And then let's look at the archaeological evidence, discovery versus the Book of Mormon. In recent years, the widely held Mormon belief that Native Americans are descended from the Hebrew Lamanites has been undermined by DNA evidence. Dr. Stephen L. Whittington, anthropologist from the University of Maine, he said physical anthropologists have not found any evidence of Hebrew origins for the people of North, South, or Central America. Dr. David Glenn Smith, molecular anthropologist, University of California, Davis, if you look at genes that are most commonly found in Native American populations and those that are most commonly found in Jewish populations, they don't coincide at all. And it's not just the unbelievers who say this, the, the critics of Mormonism. Mormon scholars themselves admit this. Dr. Thomas Murphy, Mormon anthropologist and scholar, explains, we are in a dilemma. We are in a, dile a dilemma now. The genetic evidence shows clearly that American Indians are not Hebrews. They are not Israelites. We have based our beliefs upon the Book of Mormon, which we thought was an accurate ancient historical record. The genetic evidence has pretty conclusively shown that that is not possibly the case. So look at, let's look at the archaeological evidence. Now, when we consider the archaeological evidence supporting the Bible, we found that there is an enormous amount of archaeological evidence, and there's more being discovered all the time. But when you look for archaeological evidence supporting the Book of Mormon, it's just the opposite. There is nothing. Zip, zero, nada. Dave Hunt, uh, a 
a uh, cult expert said this, meaning that the lack of archaeological evidence, this remains the case today. In spite of decades of the most aggressive archaeological exploration throughout North, Central, and South America, the Herculean effort, supported by the vast wealth and determination of the Mormon Church, has left no stone unturned in the search for verification of the Book of Mormon, but has come up empty-handed. Not one piece of evidence has ever been found to support the Book of Mormon. Not a trace of the large cities it names, no ruins, no coins, no letters or documents or monuments, nothing in writing. Not even one of the rivers or mountains or any of the topography it mentions has ever been identified. And once again, it's not just the detractors of Mormonism who say this. D.F. Green. Now, D.F. Green was the former editor of the University Archaeological Society newsletter published at Brigham Young University. And D.F. Green said this, the first myth we need to eliminate is that the Book of Mormon, is that Book of Mormon archaeology exists. No Book of Mormon location is known with reference to modern topography. Biblical archaeology can be studied because we do know where Jerusalem and Jericho were and are. But we do not know where Zarahemla and Bountiful, nor any other location for that matter, were or are. It would seem then that a concentration on the geography would, should be the first order of business. But years of such an approach has left us empty-handed. Thomas Stuart Ferguson. He's a Mormon archaeologist. He founded the New World Archaeology Foundation at Brigham Young University, which was established for the purpose of unearthing archaeological evidence that would support the Book of Mormon. And here's what he had to say. With all of those great efforts, it cannot be established factually that anyone from Joseph, Joseph Smith to the present day has put his finger on a single point of terrain that was a Book of Mormon geographical place. And the hemisphere has been pretty well checked out by competent people. I must agree with D. Green, who has told us that to date there is no Book of Mormon archaeology. I, for one, would be happy if D. was wrong. You can't set a Book of Mormon geography down anywhere because it is fictional. Little wonder then that Mormons are taught to discount the evidence and rely on a subjective feeling, a burning in the bosom. That's, that's the expression they use, a burning in the bosom, for confirmation of the truth of the Book of Mormon. It's true because I know it in my heart. Now, Moroni wasn't the first person who appeared to Joseph Smith. Over the years, there was a virtual parade of biblical characters who appeared to Joseph Smith. Even before Moroni appeared to him, God the Father and God the Son appeared to Joseph Smith. And they told him that all of the churches had become corrupt and that God was going to restore the true church through Joseph Smith. The Mormon organization officially took form on May 15, 1829, when John the Baptist allegedly appeared to Joseph Smith and ordained him to the Aaronic priesthood. So here, here's that happening. Here's John the Baptist appearing to Joseph Smith and anointing him to the Aaronic priesthood. Not long thereafter, the apostles, Peter, James, and John, allegedly appeared to confer the Melchizedek priesthood on Smith so that he would have authority to act on behalf of Jesus Christ in the last dispensation. So he got two priesthoods, the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood. And because of that, all Mormon male, adult males can become priests. There's the, the three apostles anointing Joseph Smith. 
Next, we look at the revelations that uh, Joseph Smith, that are recognized by the Mormon Church, mainly the writings of Joseph Smith. The, there are four revelations, four writings that they consider inspired by God. The first is the Bible, but only as far as it is correctly translated. I'll talk more about what Mormons think of the Bible later, but I want to concentrate on the other three right now. There is also the Book of Mormon. Most people have heard of the Book of Mormon, but perhaps you didn't know about these other two, these other two writings of Joseph Smith that are considered to be inspired. Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. Now, ironically... The only one of these four that is not entirely reliable is the first one, the Bible. The other three are perfect, but you can't always trust the Bible, at least as, as it has come down to us. There is a Joseph Smith translation of the Bible where he supposedly corrected all of, all of the mistakes in the Bible. It's also known as the inspired version. Uh, but you don't hear much about that. It's still available. I, I found it online and downloaded it, but you don't hear much about that. I, I think the reason is because it never was a, an official church publication. Joseph Smith referred to the Book of Mormon as the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion. Joseph F. Smith. Now, Joseph F. Smith is a nephew of Joseph Smith. Joseph F. Smith was the sixth president and prophet of the Mormon Church. He went so far as to say that the words were not only correct, but every letter was given to Joseph Smith by the gift and power of God. Every letter. However, the Book of Mormon has now been altered about 4,000 times to compensate for poor grammar and spelling as well as factual errors. One of the silliest teachings of Mormonism, after Joseph Smith died, his followers reported that he had said that there were people living on the moon. And not only that, not only did he say that there are people living on the moon, but he even described the style of clothing that they wear. It became such an embarrassment for Mormons to try to defend that ridiculous idea that they eventually just quietly eliminated it. Well, we're not going to talk about that anymore. So you won't find that mentioned in any modern Mormon publications. Right? Next we have the Doctrine and Covenants. This book is also highly problematic. Doctrine and Covenants 131, a revelation delivered by Joseph Smith on May 16 and 17, 1843, emphatically teaches that apart from plural marriage, no one can enter the highest level of heaven. Though this teaching remains in Mormon scripture as divine law, the practice of polygamy was repealed almost 50 years later in response to pressure from the United States government. Utah wanted to become a state, and the U.S. government would not allow them to become a state unless they got rid of polygamy. In fact, the uh, U.S. government threatened to expel them to Mexico if they didn't get rid of polygamy. So in, eight, in September 1890, uh, Mormon president and prophet Wilford Woodruff, he was the president at that time, received and issued a, con a contrary revelation relegating polygamy to the afterlife. So they were faced with a dilemma. How, how do we handle this dilemma? So they wanted to become a state, but they didn't want to get rid of this thing that was in their scriptures, in their teachings. So the, the president came up with an innovative idea he said, well, well, you don't need to practice plural marriage in this life, but you do need to practice it in the next life if you want to get to that highest level of heaven. So that uh, resolved the, the dilemma and allowed 
Mormon is Utah to become a state. The Pearl of Great Price. This is the other supposedly inspired document that Joseph Smith wrote. Together with racially charged language in the Book of Mormon, we saw some of that earlier, the Pearl of Great Price was used for years to prevent men of African descent from entering the priesthood. For behold, the Lord shall curse the land with much heat, and the barrenness thereof shall go forth forever. And there was a blackness came upon all the children of Canaan, that they were despised, they were despised among all people. It was not until 1978 that the Mormon church, again in a contradictory revelation spurred by political pressure, ceased to use such writings to exclude males of African descent from the priesthood. Equally devastating to the credibility of the Pearl of Great Price is that professional Egyptologists identify the original manuscript Smith translated as the Book of Abraham, that's, that's part of the Pearl of Great Price, as being merely pagan funerary documents that convey nothing related to what Smith depicts in the Book of Abraham. So we can't, we can't look at the golden plates, we don't have access to them, but they did have access to the papyrus documents that supposedly were the basis for the Book of Abraham. And the Egyptologists say, no way, this has nothing to do with what, what uh, Joseph Smith supposedly translated from them. Now let's look at the revelations, the, book, the books that Mormons consider inspired by God. Despite the authority that the LDS has vested in these extra-biblical revelations, Mormon leaders have been forced on countless occasions to change, repeal, and contradict embarrassing and egregious teachings in these works. Now, in addition to those four documents that I told you about, any revelation from the living Mormon president and prophet is binding on the church. We are now on our 16th president of the Mormon church. So anything that they say, any proclamations that they make are also inspired revelation from God. So let's look at this thing about inspired revelation. Are the writings of Joseph Smith really inspired? This would never occur to the vast majority of Mormons, but I'd like you to, to think through this with me. In the Book of Mormon, it is indicated that Joseph Smith was a descendant of Joseph in the Old Testament. And the priesthood was conferred upon Joseph Smith. But in the Pearl of Great Price, we are told that no Egyptian would ever receive the priesthood. This is the problem. This is the big problem. Here's why. In the Bible, in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 41, we are told that Joseph married an Egyptian wife. That means that his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are half Egyptian. And that means that all of Joseph's descendants are part Egyptian. So, which is it? If Joseph Smith is truly descended from Joseph, then it can't possibly be true that no Egyptian would ever receive the priesthood. But, if it's true that no Egyptian would ever receive the priesthood, then Joseph Smith couldn't have received the priesthood. He's disqualified. So, you see the problem? <laughs> now, let's, let's look at Mormon doctrinal deviations. And there are so many of those, I can't possibly cover them all. But I want to look briefly at each of these. The deity of Christ, original sin, the canon of Scripture... The Trinity, resurrection, meaning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the idea of the new creation, and eschatology. Oh no, 
we have an acronym within an acronym. So first, let's look at the deity of Christ. Mormons boldly assert that Jesus was the divine son of God. But their definitions radically depart from anything biblical. The Mormon Jesus is neither unique nor eternal. According to Mormon teaching, Jesus is the first spirit child begotten by Heavenly Father and one of Heavenly Father's many wives. Jesus progressed through obedience to the status of a God prior to his incarnation on earth. Jesus' divinity is not self-originating, but is derived from being the literal son of divinity. The Mormon Jesus has spirit brothers. Mormons teach that the Heavenly Father subsequently had many more spirit children. We ourselves are thought to be such spirit beings, siblings of Jesus. Mormons believe that even Satan, Lucifer, is a spirit brother of Jesus. The Mormon Jesus was conceived by sexual intercourse. Traditionally, Mormons taught that Christ acquired his fleshly body via sexual intercourse between Heavenly Father and the Virgin Mary. Hence, he is God's only begotten son, that is the only person to ever be sired on earth by the Heavenly Father. See, the rest of us were, in, were sired up in heaven. We were, were spirit babies. But the, Jesus was the only person who was ever sired on earth by the Heavenly Father. Today, this belief is rarely discussed, but it has never been repudiated by LDS leaders. The Mormon Jesus is another Jesus. And it's not just me saying that. In 1998, the LDS Church News quoted the late LDS President Gordon B. Hinckley. In bearing testimony of Jesus Christ, President Hinckley spoke of those outside the church who say Latter-day Saints do not believe in the traditional Christ. And this is what Gordon B. Hinckley said. No, I don't. The traditional Christ of whom they speak is not the Christ of whom I speak. The true Jesus Christ, the eternal creator God. In sharp contrast to Mormon Christology, the biblical witness is clear and convincing. Jesus is the eternal creator God. Jesus is Satan's creator, not his spirit brother. Original sin. Mormons deny original sin by regarding the fall as necessary and glorious. According to Mormon teaching, spirit children who pre-exist in the spirit world need bodies in order to progress to Godhead. However, Mormons maintain that prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were not mortal, redefined to mean able to bear children. So that's how Mormons define mortals, being able to have children. And prior to the, to the fall, they weren't able to have children. According to Mormon apostle, apostle Bruce McConkie, Adam was to introduce mortality and all that attends it, so that the opportunity for eternal progression and perfection might be offered to all the spirit children of the Father. Being mortal, he, Adam, could now have children, thus providing bodies for the pre-existent hosts. So that made it possible for Adam and Eve to have children so that we could all have bodies. Mormons deny original sin by separating sin from transgression. LDS President Joseph F. Smith, remember he's the, the nephew of Joseph Smith, the fall was a transgression of the law, but not a sin in the strict sense. For it was something that Adam and Eve had to do. LDS Apostle Dallin Oaks. We celebrate Eve's act and honor her wisdom and courage in the great episode called The Fall. So once again, the fall is a good thing because that made it possible for us to have bodies and 
progress towards becoming gods. LDS apostle Bruce McConkie, we heard of him earlier, children are not conceived in sin. They do not come into the world with any taint of impurity, whatever. That's not what the Bible says. 1 John 3, 4. Whoever commits sin also transgresses the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So this artificial distinction that the Mormons make between sin and transgression uh, doesn't hold up in the light of Scripture. And also David recognized in Psalm 51, Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he realized that he was born in sin, not free of sin as the Mormons claim. The canon of scripture, I mentioned that the Bible is one of the books that the Mormons recognize as scripture. But while the Mormon church publicly affirms the truth of the Bible, in fact, it is regularly cast aside whenever it conflicts with the works of Joseph Smith and other LDS apostles. Mormon apostle John Pratt. Now, this is, this is what Mormons think about the Bible. The Hebrew and Greek manuscripts are evidently very much corrupted. The learned are under the necessity of translating from such mutilated, imperfect, and in many, very many instances, contradictory copies as still exist. This uncertainty renders the Bibles of all languages at the present day emphatically the words of men instead of the pure word of God. So that's why Mormons don't think that the Bible is entirely reliable. In answer to that, I simply refer you to the study on, that we had on the evidence supporting the Bible. If you can look at the manuscript evidence and the archaeological evidence and the prophetic evidence and the scientific evidence and still say that the Bible is unreliable, uh, there's not much hope for you. The Trinity. Although some passages in the Book of Mormon seem to teach that there is only one God, Mormon authorities explicitly teach polytheism, many gods. Mormons worship three separate and distinct gods. This is what Joseph Smith said. I will preach on the plurality of gods. I have always declared God to be a distinct personage. Jesus, a separate and distinct personage from God the Father, and that the Holy Ghost was a distinct personage and a spirit. And these three constitute three distinct personages and three gods. One of, one of the things that really surprised me in, in my studies of Mormonism was that not only does, do Mormon teachings conflict with the Bible, but they even conflict with the Book of Mormon. <laughs> um, Joseph Smith wrote the, the Book of Mormon early in his life. And so many of the teachings of Mormonism that he himself developed later on contradict the, the teachings in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is the teachings of the Book of Mormon are more biblical than the teachings of Mormonism. Because the Book of Mormon flatly says in, in several places that there is only one God. Mormons believe that they will someday become gods themselves. That also, is, is, by the way, is not a teaching of the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith explains eternal progression. God himself was once as we now are. And he and is an exalted man and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. God himself, the father of us all, dwelt on an earth. That's the planet Kolob, right, Ralph? Isn't that what it's called? <laughs> planet Kolob? It wasn't on this planet. It was a different planet. God himself, the father of us all, dwelt on an earth. The same as Jesus Christ himself did. You have got to learn how to be gods yourselves. The same as all gods have done before you. So there's this eternal progression of First you're immortal, then you become a god. Christian worship, Christians worship the true three in one, eternal and unchanging. There is only one God, 
The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternally distinct. But there's still only one God in three persons. God is eternally unchangeable in his essence. He did not progress from manhood to Godhood. And no new members will be added to the Godhead. Mormons strongly affirm the resurrection of Christ, referring to it as one of the most demonstrable truths of the Bible. Yet the question must be asked, for what purpose do they believe he rose? They believe he rose, but why did he rise? I I think they'll be surprised at their understanding of that, of the purpose of the resurrection. Mormons believe Christ's resurrection did nothing but guarantee that everyone will be raised from the dead with the opportunity to pursue their own course of salvation. All will be raised but those who attain eternal life. Now that's Mormonism's term term for Godhead. Eternal life is when you're exalted. You become a God and, and you have the opportunity to have spirit babies forever. All of you raised with those who attain eternal life will do so through good works, not the redeeming work of Christ. Christians believe Jesus' resurrection was effective for all believers, not just an elite few. Jesus' resurrection destroyed the power of death over humanity by making possible a resurrection unto eternal life of all those who believe, who die in Christ, all those who die in Christ, not just some, as the Mormons teach. And of course, they have a different definition of eternal life anyway. It secured eternal life for those who through faith receive Christ's sacrificial death for their sins and who by grace come to God for forgiveness on the basis of that sacrifice. It proved that all those who believe in Jesus will, like Jesus, be raised and given eternal life. Once again, all of them, not just super-duper elite Christians. The Incarnation. Mormonism teaches that Jesus is the product of sexual union. I mentioned that earlier. Although this is seldom mentioned in public today, The traditional LDS view is that our Lord was first conceived as spirit child by Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, one of the Heavenly Mothers, then was begotten in the flesh when Heavenly Father had sex with the Virgin Mary. The 13th Mormon president and prophet, Ezra Taft Benson, explained that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the most literal sense. The body in which he performed his mission in the flesh was sired by that same holy being we worship as God, our eternal Father. Mormonism twists the meaning of Mary's virginity. Strangely, Mormons still attempt to maintain that Mary remained a virgin after her encounter with Heavenly Father. They do that by redefining virginity to mean a woman who had not had sex with a mortal man. See, Heavenly Father is not a mortal man, so that doesn't count. She's still a virgin. Christianity proclaims Christ's truly miraculous birth. The biblical witness clearly states that Jesus was supernaturally, not naturally conceived. new creation. Mormons teach that one's lot in the afterlife will reflect one's obedience to the laws of Mormonism in this life. According to the Book of Mormon, grace is only sufficient for the eternal life of those who have done all they can do. This is what it says in the Book of Mormon. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. In the words of Joseph F. Smith, to enter the celestial kingdom, 
and obtain exaltation. That's where you become a god and are able to procreate throughout eternity. It is necessary that the whole law be kept. So you really have to adhere to the Mormon line if you're going to make it to that highest level of heaven. The Christian's righteousness is by faith. The great enduring truth of Christianity is that we need not rely on our own righteousness to secure a place with our Creator. God's righteousness through Christ is imputed to us. Eschatology. This is a fun one. In his self-importance, Joseph Smith relocated the center of God's end-time activities to his own hometown and the end times to his own lifetime. Joseph Smith was, was born in upstate New York, but then the Mormons moved to Ohio and then to Missouri and then to Illinois. They established a town in Illinois called Nauvoo. And then from there, they ended up going out, to, out west to Utah. During the millennium, Mormons will reign with Christ and everyone will be confronted with Mormonism as the one true religion. Missouri became the, the center of Mormon activity. Remember that Joseph Smith never went to Utah. He, he was murdered before. That, in fact, that's why the Mormons moved, moved to Utah. They decided they needed to go west and get away from populated areas and hostile neighbors. So for Joseph Smith, Missouri was the place. Joseph Smith alleged God told him the return of Christ would take place before he was 85 years of age. Now, he never had to worry about that because he was murdered when he was only 38, so he didn't, have to <laughs> he didn't have to worry about that. But he laid a cornerstone in Jackson County, Missouri, at the exact location he supposed the Millennial Temple would be constructed. In Mormon teaching, Christ will rule his Millennial Kingdom from two places, Missouri and Jerusalem. Presidential candidate Mitt Romney weighed in on, on Mormon eschatology. Throughout the Bible, Christ appears in Jerusalem, splits the Mount of Olives to stop the war that's coming to kill the Jews. Our church believes that. We also believe that over the thousand years that follows the millennium, he will reign from two places. That the law will come forth from one place in Missouri, and the other will be in Jerusalem. Smith also believed the Garden of Eden was located in western Missouri. And Adam would return to the state of Missouri to prepare the way for the millennium. Smith even claimed to have discerned that a pile of rocks he stumbled upon was the remains of an altar Adam had built with his own hands in Davies County. <clears throat> now, let's take a look at the oaths and temple rituals that Mormons go through. Perhaps you wonder what, go, what exactly goes on in, in Mormon temples. Because not, not every Mormon structure is a, is a temple. They have local churches that aren't temples. And um, the Twin Cities area is graced with, with a temple. So we're, we're one of the really lucky ones. We have a temple here. I don't remember how long ago it was when that temple was built. But once a temple is consecrated as a temple, non-Mormons can't go into it. But before the temple was consecrated, they allowed non-Mormons to take tours of the, of the temple. Wasn't that in the 90s? I don't think it was that long ago. It was, it was yeah. less than 15 years. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I took a tour of it before, before it was consecrated as a temple. And uh, it was an interesting place. It was a huge place. So th this is what, what the oaths and temple rituals, some of the things that they consist of. 
After a ceremonial washing and anointing and the bestowal of a secret new name on each Temple Mormon, participants receive sacred undergarments believed to repel physical and spiritual dangers. So this is, they call them undergarments, I call them underwear. But the, the, this sacred underwear has a, a little hole over the heart. And that is to commemorate the martyrdom of Joseph Smith. He was shot in the heart. So that's why they have a little hole in, in their underwear. The, the underwear, um, as it was originally designed, you know, it was like a, a long john. I mean, it, it went down to your wrists and it went down to your ankles. Um, this became a problem, especially for women, you know, trying to harmonize the requirements of Mormonism with the modern clothing fashions, you know. So they did alter that back in, I think it was in the 1920s, they altered that uh, so that, uh, you know, now the underwear just comes down to above the elbow and above the knee, so it's not as much of a, of a problem as fashion-wise. And that, that is one thing that you will find about the, the temple rituals is that they change a lot because whenever critics of Mormonism point out some of the problems with the temple rituals, they, they change them. <laughs> now, following the, these initiations is the endowment, a false representation of man's kind, mankind's fall into sin according to which Adam ultimately accepts Mormonism. Each participant must, must accurately answer a series of questions to pass through a curtain and complete the ceremony. Uh, by the way, I, I don't have it out here, but I, I do have a book that, that shows um, some photos of, of some of the temple rituals and compares them with Freemasonry. These rituals borrowed in part from the rites of Freemasonry, and that's not just a coincidence. Joseph Smith was a Freemason. Are often per performed on behalf of the deceased. Now this, this really gets interesting. And include baptisms on behalf of the dead. And in the case of men, ordinations into the priesthood by proxy. Now are, are all of you sort of familiar with the Mormon practice of baptism for the dead. If if um, if you're a, a good temple Mormon, you can be baptized on behalf of your great great grandmother Gertrude. Even though she had never heard of Mormonism, didn't know anything about Mormonism, had no interest in ever becoming a Mormon, you can make her a Mormon retroactively by proxy. These are called proxy baptisms. And the reason you would want to do that is because in, in the Mormon scheme of things, there are three levels of the uh, post-mortal existence, you know, after, after death. There's the telestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, and the celestial kingdom. Now, this sounds like a video game, I know, but, but you want to make it to that highest level. Because the telestial kingdom is where the wicked go. The terrestrial kingdom is where righteous people go that weren't Mormons. You know, good people that weren't Mormons. They get to go to that middle kingdom. But only Mormons get to go to the celestial kingdom. So you, want, you love your relatives, your, you know, your deceased relatives, don't you? So you want to make them Mormons too. Um, at least they'll be in the celestial kingdom. They can never be in that highest level. I mean, within the celestial kingdom, there are at least three levels, too. And in order to make it to the highest level where you become a god, you need to be, uh, you need to be married in the temple. So, you know, Gertrude can't make it to the highest level within the celestial kingdom, but at least she can be in the celestial kingdom. She can be a woman. Now, in defense of this practice... Mormons often cite Paul's rhetorical question to the Christians in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do 
who are baptized for the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now, this is a prime example of how not to establish a biblical doctrine. You don't take one obscure verse of scripture and build an entire elaborate doctrine on that one obscure verse of scripture. This is exactly what, what the Mormons do. They build a, a doctrine up upon one obscure verse of scripture. There is absolutely no biblical warrant for the Mormon practice of baptisms for the dead. In the first Corinthians passage, Paul was simply appealing to a practice known by his audience that revealed the presumption of resurrection. We must be careful, especially with practices mentioned only once in the Bible, not to confuse intended historical precedent with incidental historical particulars. You, you may have heard the, the, the uh, terms um, prescription versus um, what is the other word? Yeah, description versus prescription. Is is the Bible telling us to do something, or is it just simply describing something that happened in the past? That's the distinction we have to make, especially in the Book of Acts. The difference between prescription and description. The, the biblical message is crystal clear. We receive eternal life on the basis of our response to the gospel, not on the basis of someone else's response on our behalf. The Bible is clear that Christ's death on the cross sufficiently secured eternal life in the presence of God for those whose faith for salvation is in him alone. Hebrews highlights Christ as the antitype not only of the temple, and the high priest, but of the sacrifice as well. The Mormon claim that temple rituals are necessary for entrance into the highest level of heaven is anathema in light of the sufficiency of Christ's atonement for the salvation of those who place their faith in him. And finally, we, we look at the new and everlasting covenant of plural marriage. Plural marriage, polygamy, is something that, that Mormons are known for and how they wiggle out of the, the problem that they had when Utah wanted to become a state. The Mormon practice of polygamy finds its origin in the teaching and, and practices of Joseph Smith, who in 1843 received an eternally binding revelation codified in Doctrine and Covenants 132. According to Smith, apart from the practice of polygamy, there was no hope of attaining to Godhead. There's no way that you can reach that highest level without practicing polygamy. So said Joseph Smith. The everlasting commandment of polygamy revealed to Smith was considered so binding that Brigham Young, the second president of the Mormon Church, declared if any deny the plurality of wives and continue to do so, I promise that you will be damned. Why do we believe in and practice polygamy? Asked Young. Because the Lord introduced it to his servants in a revelation given to Joseph Smith. And the Lord's servants have always practiced it. This is the religion of Abraham, and unless we do the works of Abraham, we are not Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Joseph Smith had at least 27 wives, plural wives, while Brigham Young had 55 wives and 57 children. Now, remember that, that Joseph Smith was murdered when he was only 38, so he would have had a lot more wives, but his life was cut short. One of the things that, that was astounding to me is that Joseph Smith's first wife, Emma Hale Smith, maintained until her dying day that she was the only wife that Joseph Smith ever had. I don't know if she was that out of touch with what was going on or if she was just in denial. I, I don't know. Um, 
the, the, whole, the whole history of polygamy in the Mormon church is, is really quite interesting because the Book of Mormon actually condemns polygamy. <laughs> but yet it, it, it became a Mormon teaching. For a long time, the Mormons denied publicly that they were practicing polygamy. Um, one of the women that, that Brigham Young wanted to marry and eventually married, she asked him, she said, does Emma know about me? Emma, his, his first wife. <laughs> and Joseph Smith said, she thinks the world of you. Well, <laughs> he really didn't answer her question. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what she asked. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm sure that he probably had a lot of wives that Emma didn't know about. <laughs> another, another thing that happened here was the leadership of the Mormon church decided that if you were married before you became a Mormon, then your marriage was invalid. So that meant that if one of the leaders of the Mormon church liked your wife, he could take her and marry her because your marriage to her was invalid. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing. As previously mentioned, under the threat of expulsion, the Mormon church abolished the earthly practice of polygamy, but transferred it to the celestial kingdom. By relegating polygamy to the eternal realm, Mormon leaders managed to comply externally with social norms while main maintaining an eschatological basis for the subjugation of women. The ideal pattern of monogamous marriage of one man and one woman was established early in Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This very passage was quoted by both Jesus and Paul in defense of the sacredness and exclusivity of monogamous marriage. The Bible explicitly condemns the polygamy of Old Testament kings. They were told that they were not to multiply unto themselves wives. Likewise, Jesus makes it clear that a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, not wives, and the two, not three or more, become one flesh. God's disdain for polygamy is seen in its consequences. The Old Testament clearly reveals the familial strife and temptations that accompany the practice. Despite his world-renowned wisdom, Solomon's peaceful and prosperous rule ended in idolatrous scandal and civil strife, for his wives turned his heart after other gods. Sanctioning of polygamy in the celestial realm stands in direct opposition to Jesus' teaching that at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So on the one hand, we see Mormonism teaching that polygamy, polygamous marriage is necessary to reach that highest level of heaven. Jesus said that in heaven, in the afterlife, there will be no marriage. So once again, we find the, the teachings of Mormonism totally at odds with the teaching of biblical Christianity. So, that's Mormonism. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure that Bob has experienced this in the, in the many um, heresies that you have examined. <laughs> I mean, after, after studying all this stuff, my head just hurts. <laughs> I, I want to study the Bible. <laughs> I've had enough of Mormonism. You said on Sunday that it was way worse than you ever thought. And that quote really stuck in my mind as I looked forward to tonight. Were you just flabbergasted at the, the heresy that you found? Or? Yeah, I mean, I, like this, this teaching that, that uh, 
Jesus was a result of the Heavenly Father having sex with Mary, for example. And, and once again, that's something that they don't publicly talk about much anymore, but it's never been rescinded. Yeah. Did, did they talk in your research about how people uh, gather other people to, become, to come into the Mormon uh, faith with all these inconsistencies? Well, how do they how do they sell Mormonism well, to someone who's new to it? It, it okay. seems unrealistic. Yeah, um, I, I have two answers to that. First, first of all, you know you've heard of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. That's part of the of the PR campaign to make people think that this is just basically another church denomination. That's part of it. And the other part of it is there's something. There's something fascinating, something captivating about being told that you have access to knowledge that has been hidden from the world for centuries. Do the secret kind of thing. And you can have a part in revealing this precious truth to mankind. I mean, there, there's a, an attraction of, of that idea. You know, it, it appeals to the ego that you know something that that somebody else, that everybody else doesn't know. That's a big part of it, I think. Is there anywhere that's mentioned, you know, the missions, the, the, the two-year mandatory, did you hit on any of that? I didn't really look into that. I, I don't I don't think that comes from the Book of Mormon. I mean, I, I don't know at what point that was, that idea originated. Yeah, yes, sir? What's that? What did you say about football teams? They said they have good football teams because yeah. all the kids, those don't count as years in uh, school. Down and then you'll... Does uh, the Mormon men give their, each of their wives a secret name by which they will call them on the grave at the resurrection and go probably go the planet? Well, re remember now that the, Mor the Mormon Church, the Church of, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is not currently practicing polygamy. You know, that's something that's in the past. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> I think it was in 1890 when Utah became a state. So they haven't been doing that for a while. The, the groups that, are, that currently practice polygamy are splinter groups that have split off from the, from the Mormon Church. Uh, Celeste. I haven't, but that sounds very believable. <laughs> yeah, so he, he stayed with her because, of course, he didn't want to yeah. lose his family. Yeah. Well, that, that's one of the um, things that's part of the um, ceremony for Temple Mormons is that uh, marriages for time and eternity. See, right now, this is time, but then eternity is beyond. So you can be bound to your wife husband and wife for eternity, not just for now, this life, but for the next. And also the sealing of families so that they're together for eternity. That's another big attraction, I think, for for people that become Mormons. Ralph. Mormons are known for keeping extensive records, uh, genealogical records. Is that before the post-mortem baptism? That's exactly what it's for. That's why Mormons are so fascinated with genealogy. Because, the, I mean, their goal is to make as many people as possible Mormons. Even though we're talking about dead people, retroactively, to be baptized for them. That's the goal, to make as many as possible Mormons so they can get into that celestial kingdom. So that's why they have all these extensive genealogical records. It's interesting too because it seems like as evangelicals became more and more biblically illiterate, you know, now everything is based upon our subjective feelings and our observations. And the biggest thing when you talk, you know, oh, we've got a Mormon church that moved into town. Oh, they're such nice people. They have such solid families. You know, that's what you hear about yeah. the PR. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're not familiar with what the Bible says, then if somebody comes along and says something else, you don't know that it's different. <laughs> uh, one, one thing that Mormons are really good at is 
getting everybody involved. I mean, if you're if you're a regular attender at a Mormon church, you're not going to be just coming at the last minute and leaving right away. They, they, somebody above you will give you a responsibility, something to do. And so they, they're really good at getting everybody involved. And that, that's one way of, you know, rubbing them into this, to this movement. <laughs> Dan. Yeah, if you, if you uh, accuse Glenn Beck of, of not being a Christian, he's, he just burst into tears. I mean, how dare you be so mean as to say that he's not a Christian? <laughs> so much of the evangelical church legitimizes that. Too. Yeah. They go to the defense of these guys. Like, I can't remember that guy's name, Barton. Oh, David Barton? David Barton. Yeah. Yeah. Just going back up as a Christian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. Oh, uh, by the way, Dan, the, the uh, town that the Mormons established in Indiana. Uh, Illinois, I'm sorry, Illinois, Nauvoo, the, the town that they established in Illinois, Nauvoo. So it, it was a Mormon town, but after the Mormons moved out west to Utah, it's not a Mormon town anymore. Now it's a Catholic town. <laughs> Most of the people there are Catholic. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's an unpleasant task, but somebody's going to do it, right, Bob? <laughs> okay.